We're doing the Messianic Psalms, and, and we're up to Psalm 22. Romans quotes Isaiah in Romans 11:34 and says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? And specifically, that's looking at who is, who is it that actually knows enough to tell God what to do and how to do it. And at the, in that context, it's looking at salvation. And we're going to look at the core of where our salvation lies, which is Jesus Christ suffering on the cross, as explained in Psalm 22. Now, when we study scripture, we want to know the context of the scripture that we're in. And in this case, we're in the Psalms. The Psalms were written as a book of either songs or chants that the people of Israel would use in in worship time and and, uh, even on their own. They made it easier to memorize and bring these thoughts to their mind. They're written throughout the period from, uh, one of the Psalms was even written by Moses, uh, David is, of course, the one who we think of the most, and this is one of his psalms. And they were assembled into five books in the Second Temple period. So when you think of it, uh, there's the nation of Israel is established in Abraham and promised looking forward. His descendants end up in Egypt. They're brought into the promised land after 40 years of wandering. Joshua leads them, and then judges are established And then we have the kings, which very quickly dissolves into chaos. The people are carried away into captivity, and the temple is destroyed, and then they rebuild the temple when they return during Ezra and Nehemiah's day. It's during that time period that they reassemble what writings they had, including the writings of the prophets who predicted the fall of Israel, who predicted the fact that they would be carried away in captivity, but they also predicted that there's a future for Israel and and this Messiah that is coming. It's during that time period, we believe, that the Psalms were assembled. And whether or not they're assembled in the order that they were written, we know that the Psalms aren't chronological. We're going to see that because we're looking at Psalm 22, which is a view of the cross, and next time we're going to be looking at Psalm 69, which is a view of Christ's earthly ministry with an exact, or with a a prediction of Christ's cleansing of the temple. So we know they're not in chronological order, but we know that, uh, and, and but we're not sure whether or not, okay, did David say this is the order they should be in, or during that second temple period, did they say this is the order they should be in? I bring that up because Psalm 22 sits in an odd place. We, of course, think of the psalm that comes after Psalm 22. Does anyone know what psalm comes after Psalm 22? Yeah, Psalm 23. Um, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, Would love to do, if we have have time, we'll do Psalm 23 someday. Um, But... If you look at Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring his work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We get this picture of the works of what God has accomplished in the world and his preeminence over everything, his control over everything. And then we have In Psalm 20, a a prayer for victory. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Now I know, verse 6, that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. This whole thing of God is overall, and he is not only the commander of all that will take place, but he is your savior. He is the one you look to. He is the one that is going to bring about your redemption. A psalm of triumph because of God. Similarly, Psalm 21, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld your request of his lips. We mentioned Psalm 23 already. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This picture of, of God himself leading his people and the picture of a good shepherd taking care of his sheep through the process of springtime leading them up into uh, through the valleys up to the mountain pastures and then back down. And then we have Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? We have this picture of of the return into Jerusalem of the king. Again, this triumphant psalm. And stuck in the middle of this is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. It's this stark juxtaposition that is present. Certainly in David's day when he was writing these other psalms, but also for the people that are assembling these. I mean, I can imagine, you know, the, the choir director getting the Psalm 19, 20, 21, 23, 24. They're like, these are great. The people are going to love these. These are going to be awesome. The chorus that we can write for this one is going to be amazing. And we'll just keep repeating this chant over and over again. And then they come to Psalm 22 and they're like, David, what, what is this? How are we supposed to sing this? How are we supposed to chant this? This makes no sense even. Forget the fact of the solemnity of this psalm and the way it starts and everything, but, but we look at it in contrast to the other psalms you've given us, and where does this stand? Obviously, Psalm 22 is prophetic. So the people of Israel are already being given by God through his grace the idea that the coming Messiah, the coming king, the the prince that would save them is going to face hardship and he's going to face a lot of struggle. It would have made no sense to him. The angels themselves were confused by how it is that salvation takes place. It made no sense to them either. It was a great mystery to them, this God becoming man. And suffering as a man. The people of Israel themselves must have been somewhat confused by the writings of David. This is prophecy, and we're, we just started Revelation, which is prophecy as well. And it's prophetic looking at, at Jesus' crucifixion. And so, as we look at prophecy, we want to also know the context of where this is taking place. And we have the benefit 
Unlike in Revelation, where we don't have the benefit of looking and seeing what's already taken place, we actually are given prophecy here, and we've lived after the fulfillment of that prophecy, at least part of it. We're going to see there's other parts of it that have not yet been fulfilled. And so Matthew 27, starting in verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments up among themselves by casting lots, sitting down and began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also among, or along with the scribes and the elders were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. It goes on to describe the horrific death of our Savior. So that's the context of Psalm 22. The context of Psalm 22 is actually set in, at the end of Christ's earthly ministry and ultimately on his goal during that hour when he accomplished what he had set his face to accomplish. Psalm 22 then, when Jesus quotes it and says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's tempting to think that Jesus, what he was doing here, was thinking of a psalm in his mind that he had learned as a child and uh, where uh, someone cries out to God and he's just, he himself is also crying out to God. And I think you'd be, you'd be remiss to do that as we look at Psalm 22. I think Psalm 22 goes deeper than that. I think this is actually a prophecy of what is in the mind of Christ as he hangs on the cross. I think the whole psalm is telling us what was in his mind and how did he work through and process what was happening to him. All too often, we, we, in, our, in our vigor to defend the deity of Christ, we forget his humanity. We forget the things that were actually happening to him, he felt. It wasn't like he's going, okay, I know how this ends in the end, which he did, and therefore it's not difficult. That doesn't work in real life. You still, as a human being, have to walk through these things. You still, as a human being, feel this disgust and disdain of those who are watching you or who have been, have been ridiculing you even for the last three years, not just on that cross. You still face all of those challenges that Christ faced. We're going to see those thoughts of what he was in. So the context of Psalm 22 is actually takes place back in Matthew, or over in Matthew 27 as well as the other Gospels. Jesus wasn't proof texting when he, when he made this cry. Not only does it tell us what was in his mind, but it also tells us his declaration of what is actually taking place is prophesied. I am fulfilling what took place. I am not here on my own mission. I'm on the mission that was set up before the foundation of the earth. I'm carrying out what the Old Testament said I should carry out. I'm following the instructions. 
And that's what's taking place now. What's amazing is the people around him don't even realize it. Jesus Christ is doing these things and the people are quoting the Old Testament themselves in their ridicule of him and his inability to call upon God to remove him from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some thought he was crawling, crying out to Elijah. He's crying out to, cry, to God and he's explaining to the people. He's preaching from the cross what's taking place. As an aside, when you see quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, don't just look at that one verse. When you look in the Old Testament at that one verse, look at the whole passage and see what the passage is talking about. Very often, either the writer in the New Testament is referring to the whole thought and idea of that Old Testament passage by quoting the one verse and assuming the readers understood the Old Testament. So very often it's that that whole idea is is brought in or it's to... um, to bring in the idea without actually having to go through it. So we have this, this Jesus Christ preaching from the cross. So let's look at what's going through the mind of Christ. We can know what's in the mind of the Lord. We can understand what's there because he explains it to us and we can use it for ourselves. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you did not, do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Certainly this isn't saying that Jesus didn't have a relationship with God where God has completely and totally cut himself off, and we're going to see that as this progresses. But that's certainly the way the appearance would seem to those on the outside, and certainly for Christ. He spent the night, the night before, praying for deliverance. Sweating blood as as even his closest disciples have ignored him as he cries out to God. And the answer he's given is that he has to take this cup. He has to do this. God does not relent from the plan. God does not change. God the Father continues to move things forward. And it's uh, Jesus himself understands that and is going through with it. But that doesn't make this an easy thing. Obviously the anguish that he's felt even before this event took place was was evidenced in the scriptures. And we see that in verse 3, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. You inhabit the praises of Israel. Even though at this point you have not delivered me from This situation that I'm in, I'm on the cross, I have had my hands and feet nailed to wood, and I'm hanging here dying. I understand that you are the one who are enthroned on the praises of Israel. You're the one. Why are you enthroned on the praises of Israel? Because in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So just think back. To when was it that God came to the deliverance of Israel? Anybody? Name a time God helped Israel. Egypt. Egypt is the obvious answer, right? Okay, so Jesus is bringing to mind here, as Jesus is faced with an arduous task, the, the, the most difficult thing that he could possibly have to face He's remembering that you are the one, Lord, even though I'm having to walk through this, even though this seems 
as though there's no way out. You are the one that we trust in because in the past you delivered us. You delivered us from Egypt. You delivered Abraham in the battle with the kings. You delivered um, Jacob from his brother Esau. You reestablished him in the land. Joshua at Jericho. All of the judges. David himself, the multiple times he was delivered. All of these times, even the people being returned from Babylon to reestablish Israel, to rebuild the temple. All these times when the people have cried out, he is delivered. So again, when you look at at the fact that God does not answer um, and he has no rest in verse 2, it's not the end of the story because Jesus knows this is not how this ends because that's not how God works. When the people of God cry out to God, he delivers them and that's that's what his faith is put in. And we have this pendulum swing from the absolute desperate situation that Christ is in over to God is in control and he will deliver. And now we see the pendulum swing back again in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. So our Savior, the creator of the world, who holds everything in his hand and causes everything that is to be and to continue is nothing but a worm, not even of the value of a man. As people walk by, and it's, it's the view of the people around him, I believe, that he's speaking of here. He's a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see him sneer at him. They separate their lip, they wag their head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And we saw that in Matthew as the people surround Christ and mock him for his position. If you are from God, you certainly wouldn't be in a bad situation. If God is really for you, can you really have all these terrible things? Would you be on a cross? Would we be hurling insults at you? If you were really of the God, it shows in Matthew again, the religious leaders, the ones who would have known this psalm are the ones who are actually carrying this about, fulfilling it. And now we see the the pendulum swing back and we see even though this is his situation with the world around him pushing in on him and mocking him for his faith in God and his understanding and resting in his terrible situation in his faith in the Lord. We see Christ himself helping us understand, well, how do you deal with those situations And here, first he turns his mind to what God has done in the past, and now he turns his mind to his own life. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It's not all that different than uh, the life of John the Baptist, one who is is saved from before birth, one who at his conception was taken and chosen by God to fulfill a plan. Jesus Christ understands that this is what his life has been all about. Every situation he has been in from the time he was born has moved him forward. 
And it's not just that, it's that he's had this relationship with his mom, with his mom. He's had this relationship with God. Catholics would be happy with me. He's had this relationship with God moving forward. That God has not only supplied the nation of Israel, but he supplied him in his upbringing, in his family. in the normal, warm relationship that a child has with the mother. That was God nurturing Christ himself, which should just, it makes my mind, it just boggles me, that God is supplying Christ with this close bond with his mother. Even that was something God provided for him. God has had him and watched over him and kept him from the beginning. Just remember, Christ was a man as well as God. 100% God, 100% man. And he's remembering what God has done for him. Upon you I was cast from birth. You're the one who I was to rely on from birth. You're the one who brought me close to you from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. It's the hand of God on him. And Jesus has realized that. When you're going through the tough times, not only remember what God has done in your life, remember what God has done for his people in the word, but also remember the fact that God has been with you. If you're a believer, you can look back at your life and you can see the hand of God working with you and being with you. And that's, that's the second thing that Christ does here on the cross as he deals with what he's walking through. As he thinks about the fact that God has been with him from the beginning, he says, Now be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. We're going to start swinging back the other way. Yes, Lord, you've been with me from the beginning, and you've brought me to this place. I understand that, but right now I need you. Don't be far from me now, not when trouble is near, for no one is help. If you look around me, many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. The strong of Bashan. Now, the bulls of Bashan is a referral to an area where they were rich in, in cattle, and therefore they were rich. Um, and it's the rich of the, of the society are the ones who have come up against him. So we have the strong bulls of Bashan have encircled him. They've opened wide their mouths at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water all of my bones are out of joint before we keep going there. Yes, Lord, I know you've been with me from the beginning, but this is what I'm facing now. Even the most important, influential, richest people of the world, the ones who, who have been given so much by the hand of God are now the ones who have turned against me. And you just, I, I, the medical side of me pictures the next few verses, starting in 14, as he turns to his own physical state. And, and it's, a, it's an amazing picture of what crucifixion is. And it reminds me of the fact that as he's describing this, as he's describing what's taking place in these next few verses, they would not have had the idea of crucifixion in their mind when this was written. And yet, after crucifixion, you look back at this and say, this is a great example of crucifixion. So as we're, or a great description of what crucifixion is, how did they not get it? (laughs) 
And, and so much, again, as we're studying Revelation, understand that there's going to be pictures of things that we just don't understand. And I've got a pretty strong hunch here that when those times do actually come and they roll forth and we see the hand of God as it deals with the earth and he brings forth this great tribulation, that at the time we'll look back and we'll go, oh, well, that made sense. That's a great description of exactly what happened. But we don't have that in our mind. And I think we're seeing some of that here. The, the, the description of what's tapping to Jesus physically here, as it matches up to what happens in a crucifixion, is amazing detail and incredibly accurate, wonderfully described, but not necessarily for the original readers of Psalm 22 would they have understood. Not necessarily would David have understood this as he prophesies about what will happen to the coming king. So he's poured out like water. Picture of the extreme weakness. Everything, every ounce of energy that he had to begin with has been completely drained from his body. There is nothing left. Those who do endurance exercise call this bonking. Jesus bonks here. It's just kind of funny. Um, if you don't do, yeah, anyway. All his energy is spent. Everything's gone. He's completely dehydrated. Everything that he can do to keep going has been removed from his body. All his bones are out of joint. Here we have this picture of during the crucifixion as they hang there from their arms, unable to support themselves on on their feet without supporting themselves on the nails that are driven through the feet. As he supports himself there, all the bones hanging are just out of joint. Everything has, he doesn't even have the strength to tighten up muscles to keep everything from becoming disjointed. His heart is like wax. The heart is a muscle and it sits there and squeezes, and his muscle is no longer firm. It's just barely able to pump. It's barely able to actually contract and continue to push the blood throughout the body. It is melted within me. What should be a strong muscle that's able to work without ever thinking about it and just go continually your whole life without hiccups has now lost all of its endurance. All of its strength is gone. Strength is dried up like a pot shard. His muscles are gone. His muscles have no ability to contract anymore. They're a dry pot shard. Tongue clinging to my jaws. What he hasn't lost in blood volume here, he's lost in, in the sweat, in the tears. Through the respiratory process, as, his, as the body is fighting all the trauma that's occurred to it, it increases the respiratory rate, which causes all of the uh, moisture that's in your lungs when you breathe, the air is, is, gains moisture and all that's been breathed out. Even his lungs, his whole respiratory tract is completely dried out. You lay me in the dust of death or lay me to the dust of death. It's, a, it's an interesting picture of not just death, this isn't just you lay me in the tomb. It's the dust of death. It's, it's the idea that uh, I've been laid and discarded. 
dust is, is gathering on my bones. The dust of death would have been a picture of after a battle, the dead are laying on the battlefield and nobody cares and the dust has just fallen upon them and there's nobody there to clean them up, bury them and take care of them and give them the respect they deserve. He's been laid in the dust of death. And here we have this picture that it's not the people doing it to him. It's not the people that have put him in this position. It's you, God. You have laid me in the dust of death. So there's this admission that I know I'm here, Lord. I'm crying out to you. You're the one who has me in this situation, and yet I am still relying on you, the one who is the Savior of all Israel and the one who has been with me from the beginning. It's you who I am relying upon. For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. It's interesting, the dogs there... Don't know if that's a picture of Gentiles, but certainly could be. Could be the criminals that are surrounding him. That picture fits as well. It could be both. As the Romans are the ones who have crucified him. And the criminals are the ones who are, who are all the way around him. I think it's both in mind here. He mentions specifically the piercing of the hands and the feet of crucifixion. Carried out by the, by the Romans. And then we see, I, I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. And I don't think this is the, I can count all my bones and they are intact. None of them have been broken. I think this is the fact that he's hanging there on the cross, which is the picture that we're given right now. And his body has been so filleted open and he is so completely dehydrated that you can see all of his bones. You can see the ribs. You can see the pelvis and the, the arches in the pelvis. You see every joint very clearly. As he has undergone this tremendous abuse for over the last 24 hours. They can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And if you remember... The, the, they cast lots to see who would get his linen tunic because of its value would be, would be diminished if it was cut up. He's, he's hanging there still alive and down in front of him, they're dividing up his clothes as, he's a dead, as though he's a dead man. And he is not. He is not yet passed on. He's lying in the dust. It, it gets us back to that picture. The, the, the dead who lay there with no one to care. That's, that's the situation he's in. He's about to enter into that. And before he's even done, these dogs that have surrounded him have taken his garments and divided them, and now they're casting lots for the most valuable possession that he had on him. Everything he has has been taken from him. And he is hung there in agony watching. And then we see the pendulum swing. But you, O oh Lord, be not far off. You, O oh you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Different ways of picturing not only the savagery, the dirtiness, 
but also the power and the strength of those who have put him in the place that he's in. He needs God's assistance to be delivered here. All too often I have this picture of Jesus on the cross when he cries, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And Jesus, I get this picture of God has forsaken him. He's completely turned his back on Jesus and he wants nothing to do with him. And Jesus understands that. And so he's just stuck there. And that's not the picture we're given here. We're given the picture here that Jesus in this situation, as he is bearing the sin of all, of, of, of all who believe in him, as he, is, as he is being crushed by that, placed there by the Father, he's crying out to the Father. Again, when he makes that cry from the cross, this is what's in his mind. This is what's going on. He continues to have faith in God that he will be delivered even though he goes through this. He has faith in God that those who have stood against him will fall. And he continues to cry out in his heart and his mind to God. And now things begin to turn. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I, the one on the cross, the one who is being so horribly treated, abused, killed by these men, I will tell your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In the midst of your people. So now he's transported from being in the midst of of these people and these uh, that are that are actually caring about this torture and this ex, this uh, this death, as well as the the criminals that he's hanging with. Now he's transported in his mind to the future when he is going to be with God's people, and he's going to speak of God's name, and he's going to praise God. And he turns to them and tells them, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. Not only does he, does he counter the situation he's in by thinking of the future, but he's thinking of the future and his opportunities to encourage other saints and other believers as he's facing this hardship that God has put him in. He remembers the ways God has delivered Israel. He's remembered the way God has been with him from the beginning. And now he's looking forward to that time when this is completed and he's with the people of God and he's encouraging the people of God. He's not the one being there encouraged by the people of God. He's the one doing the encouraging. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. Why? Why? For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Jesus crying to God on the cross, bearing the weight of sin, cries out to God and God hears him. Now God doesn't remove the cross from him or take him down or heal him. We know how this story ends. Christ himself dies on the cross for our sins. Jesus knows and understands that. His face has been set on this moment from before eternity passed.
But he's still looking forward to this day when he praises God. For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted. He knows that God is hearing him from the cross. And again, we see this action by God. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. A wonderful picture of what praise and worship of God is. It's God working through his people, producing praise for himself. Christ himself is looking forward to God using him, God the Father, praising God the Father, the whole trinity from the great assembly. And Jesus giving us further pictures of not only the, the praise that comes forth, but the, the paying of the vows, which could be a couple of different things, but just to say all that is required, he is fulfilling and he's doing it before those, again, the encouragement of those around him, that he has walked through this terrible episode and come through it, and God has brought him through. So those of you who are afflicted, understand, those of you who are poor, those of you who have suffered greatly, you will eat and you be satisfied. Those who seek God will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. In contrast to the melting heart, that's made of wax, we now see a heart that's strong. And all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. Now we've made this change. This, this helps clarify the change that took place in verse 22 of timing. We have what's taken place on the cross up to verse 21, and now we have verse 22 going on. We see that God actually restores this person Who's it going, undergoing this affliction? We go, well, this can't be David. Not with the description of what's going on. You can try to make this fit David's life, but, but this is going to get beyond anything not only that David saw, but that Christ saw in his own life. He's speaking of a future event here, even for us. This is prophecy for us now. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations will worship you. Christ on the cross has set his heart not only on his being restored, but what the ultimate plan is. God will listen to him. God will save him. God will raise him from the dead. And now he's looking forward to a future event even from now where all the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations worship God. And there's an interesting statement here in verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's. How many kingdoms are the Lord's there? One, right? The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. How many nations, plural or singular? Plural, right? This is a time period when God is going to have a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to rule over all the nations. Certainly a picture we're going to see in Revelation, where there is a kingdom that belongs to Christ as he comes to rule. And his rule is over all the nations. There's still all the nations of the, of the world exist. And that picture was kind of started there uh, in verse 27, is all the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families or all the tribes of the nations, there's multiple nations here coming into the kingdom of God. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to dust will bow before him. So all those 
again, that picture of death that's happened before. Everyone is going to worship him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, posterity will serve him. The seed, those who are to come in the future will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. What takes place on the cross is what is remembered going forward for generation to generation. That's why we do communion. We're looking back at what took place because we know that the promise is of what will be to come. Even those who cannot keep his soul alive, those who have died, and those who are still prosperous on the earth, those who are enjoying the riches of God's goodness in this physical realm, all of them will see him. Everyone moving, going forward will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation that he will come and declare his righteousness. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. There's that, that picture of not only turning to God in spite of what you've gone through and looking forward to being able to worship him, looking forward to being able to encourage others, but also looking forward. Here we have this picture of evangelism, not only of your children and of further generations for yourself, but the whole world being blessed by what's taken place. They will come and declare his righteousness, the righteousness of God and what is taking place here on the cross, what is described in great detail in Psalm 22, will be told to a people who have yet to become that he has performed it. The great value then of what has taken place on the cross up through verse 21 is its benefit to all the people of the world. It's benefit to us in this day and it's a benefit to those around us who we who are blessed to hear the gospel from our lips. And that's what is on Christ's mind as he hangs there in agony. When he cries out to God the Father, it's a cry out of, my situation is absolutely horrid, but I understand that you are God. What you've done in the past for your people, what you've done for me in my life, what you will do for me, that I will be with your people. I will praise your name in spite of all this because because of this, all the nations of the world To put it another way, the Old Testament does. All the nations of the world will be blessed because of what's done here for sin. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you and praise you that while we don't understand the things you do in our own lives and we see very darkly the events, especially those events that are are painful and stressful, and cause us anxiety and anguish. Lord, but allow us to take the lesson that Christ taught from the cross in dealing with those things, that we understand, Lord, that ultimately all those things can work out to good for those who love you and have been called by you because of what Christ did on the cross, because of his actions there, because he took the full weight of sin. Because he died the death in my place, in the place of all here who believe, Lord, because of that, because of our faith in that, Lord, we can look forward to a day 
not unlike today where we worship together and you produce praise in our hearts, but Lord, ultimately a day where you win, where your son is crowned king with a real crown and stands in a real kingdom and rules over real nations, Lord. And we look forward to that day for no one deserves such high an honor. No one else could be able to come forward and take that scroll. No one else would be able to do that except for the one who suffered such a terrible death in his innocence, Lord. Ultimately put there by you, for you, in your glory. And it's your glory we praise today. Amen.